Well, today is November 16th, 2016. The title of today's message is The Narrow Path to Joy. The Narrow Path to Joy. Everybody turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. And let's go to verse 24. There. Amazing. Tonight, guys, is going to be a mixture of preaching and teaching, and I am not exactly firm on what order or exactly what time, but I do know that what we're going to preach, what I'm going to preach and what I'm going to teach is hopefully going to feed your soul, it will convict your soul, and it will edify your spirit. Amen? Amen. So Luke chapter 13, everybody's there except for me. I apologize. Verse 24. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Everybody say narrow door. Narrow door. Very good. Because many, everybody say many. I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Over the course of the past couple of weeks, God has been putting a message together for us to glean from. And the most recent one had to do with being punched in the face. So you've got to kind of hold your lip a little bit when you say that. And it sounds like face, but it's faith. Faith. When you're punched in the faith. It's a determination of how are you going to respond. And by doing so, it reveals the contents of your heart. Does everybody remember the picture of the sheep that had all the thorns or the, the, the burrs? There you go. Thank you very much. The burrs around its neck. And did you all connect with that analogy of how it relates to you having offenses? And whenever anyone bumps up next to you, all of a sudden it pokes and it's hard. And that you associate that hurt and that offense with that person, but it's really the burr that you have inside your own wool, which is the offense that you've been harboring inside of your heart. I imagine it in my mind that right above the skin, inside the wool, you have the burr. And it's just hovering. And it's waiting for a moment of pressure. And the minute that there's pressure, all of a sudden that burr makes contact with the skin, and henceforth, the pain. Well, When we come in contact with people, sometimes there are just people that rub you the wrong way. And everybody, it's okay. You can say amen to that. The other part you can say amen to is that God puts those kind of people in your life and in your path to magnify where you have a flaw, where you have a burr. Well, there's an end destination that God is after. When you are punched in the faith, when burrs are revealed in your wool, And like the title of tonight's message, there is a narrow path, there's a narrow door that leads to joy. So everybody say joy. Joy. Now, I'm starting out in a very mechanical way. I'm finding my groove. I'm going to get serious. I'm going to let the weight of condemnation near about crush you. And I'm going to raise you up in the name of Jesus. And you're going to be joyful when you walk out of these doors. You're going to have in a line of sight the crushing and the suffering in which you have gone through are going through, and will go through until the day that you die. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's get to our next scripture. But keep in mind Luke 13, 24. That's our central one. Everybody turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. We'll start in uh, verse 21, and we'll work our way down. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. 
Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path. Everybody say narrow path. Between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to make you beat me these three times? Everybody say three times. Three times. I'm going to put it up here just to keep it in remembrance here. Three times. We're pretty familiar with this story, right? Balaam is a prophet for hire, using the gift of God to fund and line his own pockets. And the donkey, everybody say donkey, especially over here. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Even a donkey could recognize the angel and presence of the Lord, but Balaam could not. Some interesting things here. When we read that that phrase in verse 26 of narrow path, there's a, a couple of different descriptions for this. But would you ever associate a narrow path with, I don't know, an adversary? An opponent? Well, we read a little bit further up of verse 26 that the angel stood in the way to oppose him, right? Sometimes when we are off course, off of the narrow path that God's leading us down, it is his grace, it is his mercy that his angel, that his presence stands in our way and begins to oppose us. Sounds very familiar to character in the Newer Testament. Saul then called Paul, where God's presence stood in his way because he himself was opposed to God and it demanded repentance. As a result here in Balaam, and consequently same as, as, as Paul, he would not take the steering. He would not heed to the opposition that the angel of the Lord was trying to get him to stop. And so they came to even a narrower path. And the angel Lord stood in the way. A further definition of this word narrow path in Hebrew, in addition to adversary, it is a narrow space easily blocked by one person. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. It's like the Lord allowed there to be a revelation of a burr in my wool. The Lord put in your life That one person that just is in your way. That one person who seems to be your adversary, your opponent at every move that you try to make. And you are just certain that they are the devil. But how about, maybe just a question, that God is putting something in your narrow path to get your attention. And narrowing it down to where it's just this one person that needs to move. And then I can go about my way and my will. But they won't move. And every time I step to the side, they step to the side. It's almost like doing a line dance. Can we say yes and amen to the fact that God puts obstacles in our way? To get our attention, at least slow down, at least recognize the voice of the Lord. And it may require us, I don't know, asking three times so that this thing is removed out of our way. Keep it in mind. Let's go to 1 Samuel, verse 13, verse 6. Y'all still with me? Yeah. Come on, Chris, say it. (laughs) I love it. Amen. So here's what we got. In verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, does anyone have a title right above verse 12? Something like Saul confirmed as king, right? 
chapter 11, verse 12, in that category. Saul's confirmed king, chapter 12. You have Samuel giving his farewell speech, giving an admonition for everybody to remain faithful to the Lord. 13, what's the title there? Samuel rebukes Saul. One man standing in Saul's way. So we'll pick up, let's do verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Aven. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and fellowship offerings. We know what this leads to is Samuel coming and rebuking Saul to his face that he acted impetuously and did not fully obey the command of God. But what happened is that the Lord allowed there to be a stressful, pressing situation. Particularly in verse 6, the same Hebrew word that we had in Numbers 22 is used in the phrase, the situation was critical. We have a few folks in here that are in the medical industry and caretaking of those who are ill. You have separate wards for people who are just in nominal medical care and those who are in intensive critical care, right? That means that they could die at any minute. That was the, the, the pressing situation that Saul was under. And because of that, his men began to lose heart and therefore he began to lose heart. Really, it's the other way around. Saul losing heart left his men losing heart. When we are put in those situations where we are beginning to be hard-pressed, and it's critical. Lord, there's only $1.50 left in my bank account. Lord, you're asking me to continue forward in obedience to you and to go in this direction, but it's ever narrowing my path. I don't have what I need to, to fit through this passageway. It's too small. It's impossible. It's critical. I am going to die if I continue on this course of action. The byproduct for Saul is that it was the final straw that broke the camel's back of God's promises. And he was rejected as king of Israel. And God gave it to another because of his fear. But more importantly, he would not continue down that narrow path. He worshipped his fear of circumstance, his fear of men, his fear of his own lack more than he had fear of God. What is God calling you to? Is it just about him magnifying your, your offenses with other people? There's an end goal in mind. He has promises that he wants to fulfill in your life. And he cannot do so if we don't get rid of offenses. But you know what? He cannot do so if you stand in fear and trepidation. And you won't move forward through the narrowing path. Let me paint a picture for you. Here we have a sheep. Maybe sometimes a goat. Which one is it, Cass? Amen. I'll keep you. So you have a sheep. You have burrs on the sides or all around my neck. In front of me is an ever-narrowing path that is less than the width of what I am now. That would have to be a pretty big opening. Well, imagine as I begin to press into that narrow opening... The sides of the walls, the confines of doing God's will are begin, beginning to push against the outside of my wool. Then they will make first contact with the burrs. Why is it that the great shepherd wants to remove burrs from my wool? It's because he knows that as I go further into God's will, it's only going to press harder against those offenses and it will collapse my strength. I will become faint hearted, give up and disobey his his. Uh, commands and miss on the promises of what the destination of the narrow path is. Does this relate to you guys? This is the Christian walk. 
This is not an option. Paul and Barnabas went about from church to church encouraging them that it's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. There is no other way. No servant is greater than his. So if they hated him, they're going to hate you. And by doing so, the glory of God will be revealed in you in the same way that is revealed in him. Come on, who wants to be used by God? Yes. Who wants to have hands that lay on the sick and they're healed? Who wants to be able to preach and see other people born again? Who wants to drive out demons? Who wants to raise the dead? There's a price you got to pay to get there. In Matthew 10, 7, it says, as you go, preach the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons. The kingdom of God lies in front of you and it lies in front of me. And it is near. It's upon us. And in doing so, it requires everything that you have and so much more. No greater love has a man than he lay down his life for his brother. Would you guys lay down your life for Jesus? Would you do it every single day on the hour? That same toil, that same struggling, that same wrenching, gut-wrenching, groaning to crucify your flesh, make it shut up and die and do the will of God. Will you do that every single hour of every single day? Amen. It's a little bit lighter response, though. Let's go to the next one. First Chronicles 21. Amen. First Chronicle 21. We have David taking the census. And he's actually incited, depending on, on which reference you go to, Kings or Chronicles. One says God, the other says Satan. But he's incited and tempted to give in to counting his, his fighting men. Counting his own strength. The subsequent happens. We'll start in verse 11. So Gad went to David and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Everybody say choice. choice. Three years of famine. Three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords and overtaking you. Or three days of the sword of the Lord. There, again, I have three times. Now then, decide how it should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. That word distress is the same word that was used in Numbers 22 for Balaam and in 1 Samuel 13.6. I am in a narrow path. I am facing an adversary. In this case, it is God. He was only given one choice. One of the aspects that we find is, in addition to removal of burrs, we have a removal of options. Before getting ready to do something for God, you have to get rid of offenses. The next step, you got to get rid of your own strength. You have to get rid of options. What it looks like, I'll just share with you my life. 
right? Nine years, I labor working for a secular company and simultaneously laboring in the kingdom of God next to my best friend, Eric Stevens. Help laying a foundation of unity and brotherhood that this church has been built on. Longing for the day that I could be released and free from secular work and devote all my time. And over that course of time, the Lord brought to the surface things that were in my wool. I thought I was ready. I thought I was ready to be in ministry two weeks after I was born again. 15, 16 years later, now we're starting to get somewhere. So God was cleaning up my wool. If I had to be completely honest, I was actually having to grow it first before something got stuck in it. Then comes the stand, standpoint or the moment in time when two weeks before I actually go full-time ministry, quit my job, diabetes sets in. Full-fledged. My, my parents did not receive, or my, my father's side of the family didn't develop it until their 60s. But here I am at 38, and it is knocking me in the ground. I'm seeing triple vision during praise and worship. So the screen you see in the back that has all the words, I thought the Holy Ghost was moving so much <laughs> that I was seeing triple vision in the middle of worship. I'm like, man, this is blowing my mind. This is why Ezekiel saw the wheel within the wheel. His rims were high and awesome. But come to find out, I was averaging a blood sugar of about 350. 400 going to hospital. What God was ensuring and a blessing to me is that, Matt, you are to go in full-time ministry, but you will not do this in your own strength. I'm going to make sure that you don't get the glory. You know what my response was about myself? That's not me. Lord, I depend on you. I trust you for everything. I wasn't honest about my own condition. I was saying that I was all in, but I wasn't fully sober about the judgment of myself if I could be. So, okay, you can be all in as long as you have your strength. And I'm talking about nine years of being up here, the power of God flowing through me to serve and lead others, propel them into his presence. And I'm depending or expecting that that same power is going to be there that easily when I go into full-time ministry. In fact, I'm expecting it to exponentially grow. But what I found was an ever-narrowing path. And I'd begin to be stripped of my own power. I'd begin to be stripped of my own strength. I didn't realize that I was taking a census of my own abilities to fight God's war. So what did God do? He put me in great distress. And over the course of these years, it's been an ever-present just stripping away and stripping away and stripping away so that only He gets the glory. You know, acacia wood is the predominant wood used in building the articles of the temple. It's the air conditioner of the desert. Where you find it, you find water and you find breeze because that is how it carries along in the desert and plants. But it has thorns a good three inches long on its bark. It's deeply rooted in the earth. So it has to be uprooted and stripped of its outer housing and then have gold clad upon it. The narrowing way is designed to strip you of your own strength, strength, uproot you from any conformity that you've ever had in this world, and then hammer you with divinity. Amen. He was in deep distress, and he said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. The byproduct of his deep distress led him to the point where an angel of the Lord spoke to Gad, and Gad relayed back to him, go to Aruna and his threshing floor and purchase from him that spot. Build an altar and make a sacrifice to me so the sword of the Lord stopped. 
You know, the angel with the sword stopped over Aruna's threshing floor. Not everything or everything that happens in the Bible is with intent and purpose. What David was undergoing was a threshing, is a separation of chaff and the real substance that God could use. He was being stripped just like that acacia would. Well, there in that very spot would eventually be built the temple upon Aruna's threshing floor where he cried out and found the mercy of God and then later would come the mercy seat of God resting in that place. Isn't the areas where we find that we are devoid, humbled, disciplined, hammered with divinity, stripped of our flesh, it becomes the very spot where God will pour out his mercy and his salvation for everyone else. You have a testimony because you came in contact with the presence of God. You came in contact with the end result of your sinful life. And now that you've experienced being born again, receiving the mercy of God, as David did on a ruler's threshing floor, now you are a herald of what is available for them that was also available for you. But you have to be all in. If you're not all in, like Christy was prophesying during worship, if you're not in a state of absolute surrender, you will only toy with the things of God, make a mockery of the name of Jesus, shame the blood that washed away your sins, and become ever more hard-hearted toward the things of God and make a wreck of your life and a disgrace to you and everyone else around you. Don't toy with the things of God. Either get on board all the way, sell out for all of who he is, have nothing to do with it at all. It has to be that narrow of a choice. You give any more gray room and our sinful nature will exploit it ten times over. You know, preachers who preach today are held responsible for the congregations and the nation that we have. Because what they should do when they preach the truth is continue to preach the truth until their churches are emptied of goats and the only thing that is left are the sheep that will follow the true shepherd. Amen. But if they are working for hire like Balaam is, even a fleshly, stubborn donkey can see God's presence, but the man of God cannot. You want to keep from becoming that? Be pressed into his narrow way. Be completely sold out. Don't give the devil a foothold any longer with offenses. Quit letting your sinful nature rob you of the promises of God and eventually have the potential to reject God's promises for your life. At the age of 16, I was a mess. I was a wreck, but I was good. I got average grades, not good grades. I got average grades. I didn't get in trouble. I wasn't as much of a, a hellion as my brother, so I was great. But there was a cavernous black hole in the center of my beating, being and it was gobbling up every bit of life that I would throw at it. It left me hollow every single night. I would lie on my bed and I would cry out, Lord, forgive me because I never felt clean. I would try and pray. I would try and draw near to the Lord. And I could never get past just my guilty conscience. And then there came the day that I realized the problem was me. I was sitting on the throne of my life. I was still in control, but I was just trying to get Jesus to come sit next to me so I could reap the benefits but not give him the driving wheel. I was still determining the direction. I didn't want to go down the narrow path. I didn't want to go down the narrow way because I love sin. I didn't want to go all the way. I wanted to go halfway. It was there on my bed, February 17, 1992, that the presence of God rocked my soul. And he said, get off the throne. That's my spot. 
And when I released that unto him, I said, I'm dead because I'm dead when you found me. That the events of my life were chaotic and I was trying to connect them and piece them all together in my own strength. And I was horrible at it. But the power of God through the gospel came alive when he showed me the true condition of my self-management of my life. And that day, on my bed, I said, I'm going to serve Jesus, and I'm going to die trying. This is it. There is no other option. It's only him. Matthew 26. One of Jesus' first miracles was turning water into wine. If that was the only ministry that you had, you would be the most popular guy in town. People would be pulling up to your front door in 18-wheeler loads of water. And you could just sit on your front porch and thank you, Jesus. Wine. Bam. I like wine. I wouldn't drink a whole 18-wheeler full, but nothing wrong with uh, wine. There's something wrong with getting drunk. As Jesus' ministry progressed, as he got closer to the joy, you know, there's an ever-narrowing path for him that it went or it started from changing water into wine and went to being pressed and sweating like drops of blood. Being crucified and water and wine flowing from his side so that we could partake in the resurrection power that then filled his body three days later. What will your ministry look like? No different. (laughs) No different. You want to know that you're getting closer to fulfilling your mezuzah statement, the God function of your life, is when it is stripping you of all your strength, is when humiliation and hurls of insults are being poured upon you because you are doing God's will. You're not receiving the acceptance of man, but you're being baptized in the criticism of man and only dependent upon the fear and power of God to sustain you. And it gets to the point where your very life is on the line and you are under great distress. And then there's just the giving up of your own life. That's when God is using you to your fullest of potential. Let's see what it looked like for him. Chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive press. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and his two sons, uh, two sons of Zebedee along with him. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. I just had that picture in my mind. So what was he before? Well, he wasn't sorrowful and he wasn't troubled. Probably just kind of like, okay, yeah. Just this is the thing. This is what's going to happen. And then they're standing on the precipice of enduring the weight of the sin of the world and the physical agony that he was going to go through and the death and resurrection. It began to weigh on him. My Sunday school visions of Jesus was that he was always happy even when he was fashioning a whip and driving out the people. He was doing it with a smile. Love wins. Love wins. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about a man, a real man with real emotions. That real man was sorrowful. That real man was troubled. That real man was weighted down. And there was a reason. He set the course. He set the standard for what we are to endure. There are moments, there absolutely will be moments where doing God's will is going to make you feel sorrowful and feel troubled. And there's a reason why it should. 
Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little, fur- little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He's asking the father for an option. Obviously, he didn't sin in doing that. But he's trying to determine the finite will of God in this manner. That he's so heavily pressed, it's to the point where he is feeling like he is dying. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch him pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it, is, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. There's a progression. And he's getting more steadfast but settled into this narrowing path. Verse 41. He came back, found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy. I can relate to that one. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. How many times did Jesus pray? Three times. And he's asking for an optional way. But here's the point of, of, of encouragement and pattern that we have to hold to. Yes, he's asking for another way. But he's also finishing that statement with a declaration of not my will, but yours be done. Saints, that's got to be our response to the ever-narrowing path. Lord, I'm going to be honest with you. This ain't easy. It's not fun. I don't want to do it. But not my will. Yours be done. Come on, say it with me. Not my will, but yours be done. Remember that. This week when you're oppressed. Tomorrow, maybe tonight, I don't know. Last week, somebody got in a wreck on the way home, being pressed. Ended up being for God's glory. Not my will, but yours be done. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, to sympathize with our, say it out loud. Weaknesses. Raise your hand if you got weaknesses. If your hands down, you're lying. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. One who has been tempted, tested, tried in every way. That means you have no excuse, no option around Jesus. Because he's been where you've been. Just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant. Can y'all say amen to that? Amen. I know I can. And are going astray. Since he himself is subject to weakness. Skip down to verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. What does God want from me in these presences? He just wants me to have reverent submission. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what it is. He wants me to get out the way. No different than the day I was born again. 
get off my throne. That's my place. And in doing so, we find help in our time of need. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who, what? Obey him. So loud cries. Let's go to Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 22. Romans 8, 22. Let me hear a few more theirs. Oh, yeah. We know that the whole earth, everybody say whole earth. earth. None of you are exempt. The whole, whole, I'm sorry, whole creation. Yeah, you're part of whole creation too. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, I can't imagine what childbirth is like. But I'm guessing it's very, very painful. In fact, there's a a video I saw (laughs) of dads having sympathy treatments of labor pains. It's quite hilarious. I like it. I don't want to do it. Not my will, but yours be done. (laughs) So creation, all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, just so that if you needed to know the, the depth of that. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. I want to focus on a couple of things here. So we have groaning of creation. We ourselves, right? We groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. The redemption of our bodies. What is that, saints? It's a resurrection, right? So everything that you're enduring and having to go through in a suffering manner, there's an end destination. That's our hope. That's the joy in which we are appointed to with our lives through the narrow path. And that our hope is in the resurrection. My hope is not in government. My hope is not in making more money. My hope is not being more happy. My hope is in the resurrection. And because it's there that I am healed. It's there that I'm saved. It's there that I'm rescued. You know, if Jesus never raised from the dead, all of our faith is futile. It means absolutely zero. That grave is empty. And I know it because he's right here. He made me into a new creation. I don't know about you, but he did that for me. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. What? Patiently. What's the time frame on that? Until you die. How about that? In the same way. Everybody say same way. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Right down here, Spirit helps. This first groaning, the Greek word means to groan together. Know that when we watch Discovery Channel... We see the toil and the torment that creation is under. I don't know if you've ever seen a praying mantis eat another bug, but it's god-awful. <laughs> he catches him and just snips off his head and begins to chow down his whole body. I mean, that's rough. That makes Isis look pathetic. <laughs> so there, there's a groaning. There's a torment. Sin is the problem. In all of creation. And because of sin, there is groaning. Well, as a result, because we wrestle with sin, there's a groaning inside of us. And in that wrestling with sin, in that weakness, 
We have the Spirit of God who helps us. This next groaning, so the, the first one was creation, meaning grown all together. This next one, just for you Bible students, I'm going to put it out here. It's verse 23. Grown inwardly is Strong's number 4727. It means to be in the straits. Does everybody know what straits are? I'm not talking about skinny jeans. Straights, narrow paths. So uh, raise your hand if you've ever seen a rodeo, either live or on TV, right? And you know those pins they put the, the, the steer, the cattle in before they let them to go to be roped? And it's this narrowing channel back from the, the holding pins. And it gets up right to this one spot. And he, ha- he can't back up and he can't go forward. He can't go left. He can't go right. And his, his forehead's touching the edge of the gate. That's being put into the straights. That what God has a portion for us to experience is that we ourselves grown inwardly. We're being forced into a narrow path. More specifically, it means to sigh, murmur, pray inaudibly. The root word for this, meaning the foundational word, we'll put it right underneath, is Strong's number 4828, and it means narrow. It is the same Greek word used in Luke 1324, speaking about the narrow door. A phrase that I love from this explanation is narrow due to obstacles close about. What are you kicking against? What obstacles has God put in your way to get you in through that narrow door? Put close about you that you keep thinking is somebody else's or something else's fault. But Lord, if I didn't have to go through this, then I would be what? You'd be more godly. You'd be happy. No, we're going to learn a little bit more about this. So everybody turn to Romans, uh, actually Hebrews chapter 1. Because in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 that we covered earlier, there were loud cries and tears. The narrow path that leads to joy is going to lead you to the point where you are boo-hooing. You're crying and there's tears. Here at the altar, the altar Next to your, your, your bed at home, probably more so in your car. That all those stains on that armrest on the driver's side is not because of your elbow. It's because the tears that are coming off of your face. Saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. So Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had purified were provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name as he inherited is superior to theirs. What's the end game of a narrowing path? What's the end game to suffering? You get to share in the glory with Jesus. And what I mean by glory is something unseen in all of time. We went to D.C. not long ago and walked around and just saw the monuments. And they're glorious. They are nothing compared to Jesus in his resurrected state. They are nothing compared to what you and I will be in our resurrected state. We will be marveled at. 
Romans 8.18. Put that up real quick. You can stay where you are in Hebrews, though. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to sit there and ponder, Lord, why do I have to suffer? Why do good people suffer? Why do mediocre people suffer? I know why wicked people suffer. They deserve it. But Lord, why am I going through this pressing? Because they are achieving for us the ability to participate in the glory of God that is in the resurrection. But you know what? Let me give you a little secret. It happens now too. The glory of God sits on your shoulders when men persecute you. The glory of God is there to sustain you in your weakness when you're being pressed through the narrow door. You don't have to do this alone. You know, ultimately, that was my sin when I was 16 years old. I was sitting on the throne of my own life and the king of my own heart because I felt like I had to do it myself. And I didn't know what in the world I was doing, but I know that I wasn't going to let anybody else do it for me. It was a self-sufficiency that kicked Jesus off the throne. And all he wanted was his spot back because it's made for him. It's not made for me. And the end goal is that he wants me to share in his inheritance. Not throw me out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not God's end goal. That's the end result of stiff-arming the Holy Ghost and telling him no and shut up. That's the result of saying, no, don't be the king of my life. I can do this better than you. But when we surrender all, we get to participate as a co-heir with Jesus. That's what I want to be. And that's what I want you to be. Deuteronomy 28. We'll begin to wrap it up here. I told you I was going to leave you in joy, right? I still promise that. Deuteronomy 28. This chapter is known as the chapter of blessings and curses. Just a simple perusing of this chapter and its sizable content. Is there more or less content with disobedience comparative to blessings? Yeah? There's more. The consequence of not obeying the king is far greater. There's so many things that get destroyed. Hey, like David, we read earlier in Chronicles, how would you like for your single decision... Just to count your fighting men. It's a whimsical thought. I think I'll do it. Result in 70,000 people dying. That's roughly what the, the size uh, of an attendance at a, an SEC college game. Give or take a couple of 10,000. But that many people's lives, their bloodshed being on your hands because you just want to do it in your own strength. That's a lot. So the weight of sin is heavy. Praise God, the weight of resurrection is even greater. So in Deuteronomy 28, we got blessings and we have curses. Uh, Verse 1 through 2 of 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you If you obey the Lord your God. Skip down to 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I am giving you today all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. They just won't settle up next to you. They're going to plow you over. One particular thing that jumped out to me, and this is where I turn the tide. Verse 47. Let's go to that. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. 
Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. You are void of joy and gladness while you're being provided for. The end goal of the narrow path is joy. Let's go to James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2. Now you know that we can't have a, a message without some paleo, right? Okay. So we're going to read this. We're going to do some paleo. We're going to weigh and measure our hearts before the Lord of are we kicking against the goads? Are we resisting the suffering to enter into his kingdom? Because it really is just a dying of our own flesh. We're still letting, letting it live. And are we then embracing the joy that the King of Kings has set before us? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your develops perseverance. perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. not lacking the end result that God has for all of mankind is that you are mature and complete and you do not lack anything at all if somebody just sat down and I'll leave that ambiguous. You can put whoever you want in that category. Somebody sat down right next to you and said, Buddy, you never have to worry about a thing ever in the rest of your life. What would that make you feel like? Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'd be ecstatic. You don't have to worry about bills. You don't have to worry about health issues. You don't have to worry about hair loss. Well, you don't right now. I do. You don't have to worry about eating too much or eating too little. You're fully provided for it. I'd say better than pretty well. Be ecstatic. I would be exceedingly and abundantly joyful. Right? Ah, but there's a catch. Wait, there's more. You just have to die to get to that place. Oh, uh, what? Are you serious? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we'll read through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off. Everybody say, throw it off. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix. Everybody say, fix. Our eyes on Jesus, the author, and what? He wants to perfect your ability to trust him. Who for the what? Joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary and lose heart. My desire for you, my desire for me, is that this message be a shot in your arm. It be a wake-up call and be a resurrection power dose that you can not grow weary and lose heart. We're going to first consider, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition. Because that same Jesus who endured opposition is the same Jesus that lives inside of you. You are not an orphan in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing. We are adopted as sons and daughters into his kingdom. And we don't have to do this alone. You know what that solves? That solves self-sufficiency. That solves greed. And that solves self-righteousness. You don't have to do this alone. A couple of men in here grew up in orphanages. 
and the thought of being adopted into a family was their every desire. It's not just an okay kind of joy. Ibrahim, I would imagine that you guys would jump through the roof if you could, if you knew you were going to be adopted into a family. How much more do we? That we were dead in our sins. We were fatherless and motherless, left to our own sinful nature. And the resurrection power, the blood of Jesus, purchased you. Gave you his spirit of adoption, his spirit of sonship. You know, whenever you're crying out here at the altar in your car or next to your bed and you're saying, Abba, Father, you know, that doesn't originate inside of you. That comes from the Holy Ghost that's inside of you. And because he put his deposit inside of you, you are not alone in this battle. You are not alone in this path. But equally, you don't own your own life. You didn't buy it. He did. And he has your best intention in mind. So joy. It is Strong's number. Eight. Zero. Five. Seven. We first have a shin. Which is a pair of teeth. Set of dentures. And I'm going to define this as destroy. Next letter here, that's a mem. It's to look like waters, like rapids. I'm going to use chaos in the paleo description for this. Next letter is a chet. Everybody say that with me, chet. Very good, you're all Jewish now. A chet is a tent wall. And I'm going to put... Dividing. Oh, told you I was an average student. Couldn't spell it right. And then lastly, we have a hay. For those of you paleontologists, the difference between these two is that it does not connect on the upper left-hand side. A hay is a picture of a man with his hands raised. Hey, isn't that good, Art? Woohoo. I'm going to put Revelation. What is God's end game in suffering? Joy. Why joy? Because when you have joy, you have the ability to destroy the chaos that's dividing you from the revelation. God's desire is that his spirit would breathe upon you the understanding of who you are and what he has for you. The only thing that stops you from understanding that is sin. Sin is that dividing wall right there. But when joy is present, it rushes in and it crushes. It destroys. It destroys sin. It destroys that which is keeping you from the revelation of who Jesus is. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand to our feet. Worship team's going to come up. We're going to have some time of self-reflection. Where have you lost your joy in the Lord? Where have you lost it? Break down this evaluation. Do I have a burr? You may be joyful in praise and worship. You may be joyful when you're reading the word, but you can't be joyful when you fellowship with other people. You got an offense in you. Let's get it straight. Let's get it right. Next, options. If you're having trouble doing God's will, whiffle waffling back and forth. Lord, I, I'm not sure if it's your will for me to do this or or do that. I know you said this, but I'm really not sure. You're considering too many options. You need the breath of his revelation to speak to you so that you only have one choice and that his will. Get it right now. And where we're going to end in the name of Jesus is that we're going to celebrate. 
we're going to be joyful and receive that infilling of the Holy Ghost that gives us power to destroy the chaos that's dividing us from our revelation. Amen. Amen? So mighty God, we lift up your name that's above every single name. We say that you are the king of our hearts. You're the king of our chaos. You are the king that is able to divide and put asunder everything that stands between us and you. Lord, we recognize your blood first and foremost, the sacrifice of who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, we let our hearts be weighed and measured in view of your sacrifice. For God so loved the world. Father, that you gave your only son. You gave us the best that you had. That we would not perish, but have everlasting and eternal life. Father, let your joy be restored unto us. The joy of our salvation. Let burrs be removed tonight in the name of Jesus. Let options be weighed by your word. And let us respond with a love and overflowing joy for us.